The Bible tells us in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, a very popular passage, uh, and it's called the fruit of the Spirit, beginning with the 16th verse through the 23rd verse. And uh, we might have that on the screen. Maybe we don't. Um, Galatians 5, there we go. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, um, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things do not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Um, I think one of the biggest problems for, for people, not just today, but all throughout history, uh, is something called self-awareness. Are we aware of who we really are, of what we really do, and how we are really perceived? Are we self-aware? Do we possess the ability to self-regulate, which, by the way, is self-control? That's how Paul ends the fruit of the Spirit, being able to self-control. Are you able to control through the Spirit? Are you able to uh, exercise self-control? self-regulation? Are you able uh, to say no when it is easier to say yes? The, uh, the Bible gives us several passages that we'll look at here in just a moment, but um, I want to tell you a story about a young man who grew up in the church. He grew up in the church, and he was a bright young man. He was a strong Christian. His family was strong, were strong Christians. They were strong in the faith, and uh, he always knew all the Bible answers. <clears throat> he was well-regarded, well-recognized at school, where he made excellent grades. Uh, and then after he finished primary school and high school, he was given the opportunity to go study at the capital city at the university, where he learned much and was quickly recognized as a great orator and a great intellect. As a matter of fact, he was given positions within the church and p- positions politically, and he was regarded as one of the top young minds of all the nation, of all the land. He uh, did very well, and he was quickly uh, promoted in and through the ranks of politics and the church, and uh, he was well-known and well-respected, and everybody knew that one day he would be one of the primary leaders of the country, and he took great pride in that, and he loved to hear his name mentioned And at one point, he fell in love, and he fell desperately in love. The problem was, he he fell in love with a woman who who already had a husband. And as he fell in love with her, they began to secretly meet, and his passions were overwhelming to him. And he knew that if he was found out, that he could lose everything. And then one night, as he was in in his bed, he began to dream, and he appeared that an angel came to him and revealed to him, that not only will you be exposed, but you will lose everything. You'll lose your job, you'll lose your respect, you'll lose your title, uh, you'll lose your lover, and it will be exposed, and you 
uh, and your, and your, the husband of your lover will come after you. He woke up in a cold sweat and he knew that this was a revelation from God. And so he gathered all his things and he left the next day. And he went as far away as he could go. And he found himself finally in a place called Jerusalem. And Jerusalem there, he went and he had heard of a couple of great uh, Christian sages, Christian uh, godly Christian men and a godly Christian woman. He went and met with them, and he began to share with them, and they were quite impressed with his knowledge. But eventually the story started to leak out, and they told him, what you really need to do is you need to take a step back, and you need to go on a long spiritual retreat. We want to invite you to come go to this monastery, and what you need to do is seek the heart of God. But his pride would not allow him, and he started trying to think in his mind, how could he reclaim his position? How could he maneuver things and get back to where he was? But soon he became deathly ill. And as he was suffering in bed, he came to the realization that he could not simply gloss over his sin and that it wasn't enough. And God wasn't really interested in his titles or what he thought he could do or what he thought he could accomplish. It was time for him to repent. And it was time for him to really seek the heart of God. He confessed and he repented and they began to mentor him and soon he was strong enough that he left and he, sure, and he went to a monastery where he stayed uh, for nearly a year and prayed and, and fasted and sought the heart of God in a community of godly men. After that, he left and went to the desert with a group called the Desert Fathers where he would pray and read the word of God and minister, and often people from the city would come out, and they would counsel, and they would ask, ask for spiritual encouragement and spiritual counsel. Uh, this man was called Evagrius. Not many of us are familiar with him. He was an early patristic father in the early 300s. Uh, he lived, and it could be a story about someone today, but he was regarded, uh, and he was known as uh, one of the early church fathers, and began to do a lot of writing, wrote many prayers. There are a lot of quotes that you can find about Evagrius. But uh, most interesting about him is he began to look at his own life and he noticed the sins that had entangled him and that he controlled his life. And as he would counsel people that would come from the city, he kept seeing these sins over and over and over again, reappearing. And soon, later on in history, they would be called the seven deadly sins. And they were sins that destroyed his heart and destroyed uh, his spirit. And this this list was used as a diagnostic test. A test to see, is there sin in your heart? Is there sin that's controlling you? Is there sin that's destroying your life? And so I want us to look at those and I want us to look at what Jesus taught. Jesus talks about these. These can all be found in the New Testament. And Jesus talks about these sins of destruction. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a scripture that we all ought to know. It's called Romans 6.23, and it's this. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages, the price, and the cost of sin is death. That doesn't mean it's always physically death, but something dies in us every time that we sin. There's a part of us that is destroyed when sin enters in to the equation. Uh, Jesus, uh, start, we're going to look at this, we'll start off this list and we're seeing the issue of pride. And pride is usually where it all begins. Now there's a good pride and there's a bad pride. The bad pride that we're talking about is vanity. 
okay? Vanity or sometimes arrogance. The pride that you think you're better. You think you don't have to. You think you deserve better. You think you deserve it. That is vanity. That's vainglory. Now, a positive pride would be this. It would be self-esteem or self-respect. That you, self, you have good self-respect, and when you have that kind of mentality, you can be proud of things because it's a part of the community because everyone is bettered. So in other words, you could have a child who's done very well at school, and because their grades are so good, you're, you're, you're proud of what they've accomplished, not for your sake, but for their sake. You don't own it. We know it's vanity when our kids don't do well in sports or our kids don't do well in school, and we take it personally. And it so disturbs us because it's about us. Well, yeah, it's them, but it's us too. That's vanity. It's about them. So when we can have pride in something that's accomplished for the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God benefits, we can say, I feel good about that. That's so good as opposed to vanity. Did anybody recognize what I did? Don't they know that this is about me? Am I getting credit? This makes you upset because the way it makes me look, that's vanity. That's the pride the negative pride that the Scripture talks about. <clears throat> As we, we look at this, I'm reminded of the story in Luke chapter 18 where there's the Pharisee and the publican. The, the religious leader comes before God and he offers a prayer like this, Oh God, thank you. Thank you that I am who I am, that I am a man of righteousness. I'm a man of cleanliness. I don't, uh, I, I don't do the egregious sin. And I serve and I give and I tithe and I do what I'm supposed to do, unlike many others. Thank you, God. You've made me me. And then there's a contrasted by a publican who was a tax gatherer who was regarded in a very unflattering manner among the people. And he comes and he says, and he will not even lift his head, Oh, God, forgive me, for I am a sinner. I'm not worthy. There's nothing that I have to offer. But I recognize that you're God and I'm not. I humbly ask for your forgiveness. And I kneel before you. And Jesus said, guess which man left righteous? You see, the first point of pride is we don't want to admit our sin. We don't want to call it what it is. And that's the sin of pride. That's where it usually all starts, right there. I don't have to. And usually the next step is greed. Matter of fact, we had the passage here in Pride, Matthew. Uh, it says, The greatest among you shall be the servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. When we don't control our pride, and they don't always go in this order, but they sometimes can, greed is usually not far behind. Matthew six twenty four. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and not the other. You cannot serve God and money. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you clean out the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of what? Greed and self-indulgence. Greed. Greed is any time that we want something that we don't have and we can't be content without it. It's the desire to simply want, if I can just get more, I want more. I'm not content with what I have. I'm not thankful for what I have. i got to have this. I want this. I want that. And we begin to think about, if only I could get it, 
I want it. I need it. And it starts to pour out of us. I won't give. I won't help. I won't do because I've got to keep it. And I want more. And from there, it's a very simple step, a very short step to envy. Envy is wanting what someone else has and wishing they didn't have it. Why do they get that? Why do they get that house? Why do they get that car? Why do they get that husband? Why do they get that wife? Why do they get those kids? Why, why, why? Why do they have those things? I deserve them. I've worked hard. I've been good. I've tried to do what's right. I wish they didn't have it. And you hope that they lose it. And maybe even better would be you get it and they don't have it. Envy. Matthew 27, 18. Do you realize that Jesus was given up upon the cross? The reason that he was turned in was because even envy. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. He's talking about before Pilate. They were envious of him. And from envy, it's always uh, a, sl- a slippery slope straight to anger. We can't, when we have envy in our heart, the process of anger has already started. Pride, greed, and envy start to feed that anger. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, 21 through 22, you've heard in your heart, you've heard, excuse me, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable in the hell of fire. And he says, when that anger is produced in us, and that anger we feel like, I deserve and I want, and this makes me mad because I'm not getting what I want. It makes me so angry. It makes me so frustrated because I deserve it. It makes me so mad. I'm driving down the road, and someone's not driving the speed limit. It makes me so mad. Don't you know I got places to go? Do you know who I am? Who do you think you are? That was a testimony. Thank you. And... Um, <laughs> And that spirit overtakes us. And when anger begins to control our heart, usually lust isn't far behind. Matthew 5, 27 says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he goes on to talk about if you do whatever you have to, cut it off, Put a barrier in between you and the lust. Whatever you have to do, deal with it. But that lust comes because, you know what? I feel like I've worked hard or I feel like I deserve more. Look at what other people have. This makes me mad. And so I'm just going to fulfill the lust in my heart. It's not hurting anybody. It's just in my heart. It's just in my mind. Just in my spirit. I'm not doing to anyone. And Jesus says, though, if you've looked with lust in your heart, then you've committed adultery. And you might think, oh, that's a little much. Tell Jesus. Jesus knows us. He created us. He formed us. He knows what makes us tick and what makes us struggle. He knows what will bring him glory and what will bring him shame. And from lust, gluttonies. Almost always a part. What's gluttony? It's not just eating too much. So many times, oh, glutton, that's one I don't do. I don't eat too much. You drink too much? You watch too much TV? Is there anything that you do for entertainment or pleasure that you just continue and you, it, it prevents you from doing what you should do? 
uh, the women are doing a conference here. If I actually didn't ask for this couch, but I think I'll use it. Because the next step from gluttony, we love to just have what we want, have our cake and eat it too, and just, you know, if I, I can't get what I want, then I'll just do all, with all that I have, I'll just do that in excess. I'll watch all the TV I want. I'll eat what I want. I'll do whatever I want. And that step leads us to sloth, slothfulness or apathy. Hey, honey, uh, can, can we talk? We need to do some, a few things. Uh, we need to deal with some things. Uh, not now. I don't feel like it. Hey, Dad, uh, will you play with me? Can I talk? You know what? Let's, let's do that later. Hey, it's time to go to church. You know, I just don't feel like it. I don't feel like today. I don't watch something on TV. I don't watch, uh, listen to something. Well, um, you know, there are a lot of opportunities for us to serve. Yeah, you know, I did that before. I'm done. A little too real, isn't it? We all think we're hard workers. Sloth isn't just about hard working. It's about what do you do with the time that God has given you. And there's something in our nature that wants this. We want to get to where we don't have to do anything we don't want. That's our goal in life. That's like the sin nature. Just get to where you got enough money, you got enough power, you got everything, and just do nothing. And when we get to that point, our passion, our zeal has been robbed. The Bible says, matter of fact, Matthew chapter 25, verse 26 through 30. Uh, if you can put that up there, Artie, real quick, let's read that. Matthew 25, 26 through 30. As it talks about sloth, it's really, the, the, the common word for us today is really apathetic. It's probably a best way to, apathy, that we're unwilling to do or change things. Um, you know what? I'm just going to ask you to look that up on your own sometime, okay? <laughs> and you just read that sometime when you get a chance. Now, let's look at the virtues of Christ, okay? Let's look at the virtues of Christ. And these are the antithesis. This is the answer to these seven deadly sins. And we see them in Scripture, beginning with that of humility. The opposite of pride is humility. Humility of heart. And we see that in Matthew chapter 20, 28. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ himself came to serve. His goal wasn't to get to where everybody served him and he didn't have to do anything. It was to serve. It was to give himself. The next virtue we see is that of giving and generosity in Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before the people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the street, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I, t- I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, the people next to you, they don't have to know. So that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees you in secret, will reward you. He he said, give with humility. So the answer to to the sin of greed is giving. Envious. When we're envious. Well, the answer to that is loving kindness. 
Mark chapter 12 says this. He's talking about the greatest commandments. The first is to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And the second is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. To love others, to show kindness, to show gentleness, to show patience. Purity is our answer to lust, or Jesus' answer to lust. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In a culture where pornography has become a multi-billion dollar industry, Jesus calls for us to protect and to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus and have purity of heart. Self-control over gluttony. Willing to say no. Willing to stop. Willing to fast. Willing to not have to have. That's self-control. And last, zeal and diligence. John chapter 2, verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers and sitting there. And by the way, yes, Jesus is angry here, but it's not a rage. It's what we call righteous indignation or righteous anger. In other words, not for his sake, but for the glory of God. And he made a whip of cords, and he drove them out of the temple and with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered it was written, Zeal for your house or passion for your house will consume me. When we become apathetic, Satan has won. We've allowed that process to kind of take root in our heart, our pride, which leads us to greed and envy and anger and our lust of our flesh, and then we want to consume whatever we have. We don't want to give, we don't want to share, we just want to consume. And it brings us to that natural state that our sinful heart is longing for. Just don't do anything, unless it feels good, unless like Sheryl Crow, if it makes you happy, why is it so bad? And that's, the, that's really the, a phrase of our culture today. So what do I do? Well, first of all, as we see these two lists together, we come to this place. We see the humility versus pride. We overcome greed with generosity, envy with love and kindness, anger with gentleness and forgiveness, lust with purity, and gluttony with self-control, and passion and diligence and slothfulness, overcome the slothfulness. How do I do that? What is the process? Well, there are four things that we can do to deal with the sin in our heart. First of all, confess the sin by name. We don't like to do that. You know why? Because of that first one, because of pride. I don't want to admit it. I don't want to admit it's that bad. That's the whole diagnostic test. You look at something and go, well, it's not that big a deal. That means it has its claws in you. It's controlling you. When you look at it, you think, yeah, whatever. It's not that big a deal. It's not really that bad. And then the next step, and then the next. The Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9, confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Confess. Say, God, I, I, Lord, I confess you that I struggle with pride, that I struggle, uh, Lord, with gluttony. I struggle, Father, with greed. I struggle with anger. I confess that before you. You know that. I place that before you, God, and I I name that, 
And uh, I ask that you forgive me. I want to be self-aware. Don't let me be so self-deceived that I don't even notice the sin in my life. Number two, repent and remove the temptation. Repentance is not just saying, "Ah, that is wrong. Repentance is saying, that's wrong and I'm turning away. I'm going to put a barrier between me and that sin. If you were, let's say you went home today and you took a walk in the woods and you came around a corner and you, not that they're out, but you saw a lion or you saw a cobra, your first thought would be, I wonder how close I can get to that. I wonder if I can play with that a little bit. I don't think it'll hurt me. If you had any sense, you'd turn and you'd run and you'd make sure you got a barrier between you and that cobra, you and that lion. And that's the picture of sin. Satan is, is a roaring lion who's seeking who he may devour. Get distance and a barrier, a person, place, or thing in between you and what you're being tempted by. Receive strength intellectually, spiritually, emotionally from the Word of God. I, I would challenge you to begin to read again, uh, beginning Matthew 4, 5, 6, and 7. Jesus deals with all of these issues. As you begin to read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' greatest sermon, and he deals with all of these issues, begin to let that wash over your heart, wash over your spirit, and then also have some accountability. Seek godly counsels. Let, let us help you. Uh, the Bible talks about in James 5.16 that the prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. Uh, seek, seek accountability. Seek assistance through the word and through the body of Christ. And once we've done that, worship. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And this is a prayer that was often pronounced and prayed in the early church. It was kind of a doxology. Uh, just like sometimes we'll do our confession here, uh, kind of a form of the Apostles' Creed. This is something that was frequently used. And so I challenge you to consider using it as well. Beginning with verse 14 of chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Again, when that temptation comes, begin to read this. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Sir Hillary, Ed, Edmund Hillary was the first man to climb successfully uh, and, and come back, uh, Mount Everest, back in the mid-50s. And he was given all kinds of awards. Matter of fact, he went on to, to reach the North Pole, the South Pole, the only man that's ever done South Pole, North Pole, and climbed Mount Everest. He did 10 other Himalayan mountains, uh, just did mountains all over the world, and was regarded as a, healing, uh, as a hero from New Zealand. And the British government, uh, the Queen, knighted him. He even appeared on their $5 bill in New Zealand, which no other living individual has ever done. So he was a, a great celebrity and a, gr- a great man. And, but he was also a very humble man. When he got to the top of the mountain, 
he took a picture of his assistant, but he wouldn't allow his assistant to take a picture of him. And he, he never really explained that why, but it was just a picture in his heart. Well, one day he, he went back to um, Mount Everest several times, and he would, do, he would conduct tours and, and uh, just do educational classes. And one day he was just out walking and walking up the hill to one of his groups, and some people noticed him. And they asked if they could take his picture, and they were all asking him questions. One of them said, well, you hold this pickaxe uh, while we take a picture. So he was holding that pickaxe, and another uh, mountain climber who didn't know Sir Edmund Hillary saw him there, and he said, uh, excuse me, sir, I, can I just help you for a second? Let me show you how to hold uh, that pickaxe. He said, you know, if you'll hold it like this, and then he said, he says, it'll go a lot better because you're not going to be able to climb a mountain like this if you don't hold it correctly and use it properly. So he proceeded to give him about a three to four minute uh, example, even though this guy never climbed uh, to the top of Mount Everest. And Sir Hillary was so humble, he let him do it, and he thanked him. And the man went on. Uh, pretty amazing humility from the guy who had already mastered the mountain, who knew how to use that pickaxe in a more practical way than anybody else on the face of the earth. But yet, he did not let his pride show. Great picture. Here's the question for you today to answer as we look as we've looked at this diagnostic test the truth of it is i go back to what i started with romans 6 23 the wages of sin is death but the gift of god is eternal life through jesus christ our lord the wages the cost of our sin is death when we sin it costs us and we have to serve when wages are something that you work for you work for someone to receive them and thankfully for all of us who have trusted Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we've recognized that we're sinners. We cannot save ourselves. There are not enough deeds that we could ever do or accomplish that would make up for the atrocity of our sin, for a holy and pure God. But he made a way through the person of Jesus Christ, who suffered and died for us, that if we'd put our hope and trust in him, our faith and commit to him, he would forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So the wages that we will receive is the gift of eternal life. Now, we are to work as workmen, the Bible tells us in, Matthew, excuse me, in Romans chapter 8. We are to be work. Our workmanship is a demonstration of our faith and our good works are our pleasing presence, so to speak, that we present before God Almighty, our faithful works to Him, but they're not saving works. They're acts of thanksgiving and of faithfulness as a servant would do. But the wages of our sin is death. We have to decide what wages we're going to receive, the wages of Christ or the wages of sin. Let me conclude with this little story about the wages of sin. One day a long time ago, there were two coal miners in the heart of central Pennsylvania. It was payday at the mines. There was a long line of men coming out to receive their checks from the clerk who would give them their wages the men were very tired from a long, long week and a long, long day of work. The men from the first coal mine were getting their wages when some other men came up from behind them that the clerk didn't know. He looked at them and he noticed they were dirty and they were somebody they had obviously been working, but he hadn't seen them before. And he asked them, where have you been working? We've been working in the mine right down the road, they answered. Well, then you need to go there to receive your wages. They said, no, we've decided that we don't like the wages that they're giving. We like yours better. We're tired, and we want to rest, and we want peace, and, and we want to just have our needs taken care of, and we've worked hard, so if you would, please give us our wages. 
At that mine where we go, they're, they're not nice to us. They're mean and they're not giving us what we thought we were going to get. We thought we were going to get more, but in fact, we found that we've gotten less. And they're so harsh and mean and critical. We, we would really appreciate it if you would just pay us. But the clerk said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. You chose to work at the other mine. You must take the wages of which you have earned there. You cannot work for one employer and get your wages from another. Who are you working for today? Have you come to the place where you've fully given your life to Jesus Christ? And you recognize it's not about you, it's about Him. You receive what He has provided and you're thankful and grateful for what you have. It doesn't mean that you don't have times of sin, but you recognize, God, I trust you. I will do everything I honestly and ethically can, and I will trust you with the rest. That's what real faith is. And so my wages will be not because I've earned it or deserve it, because of what you pay. And for all others, the wages of sin is death. It will eventually kill us permanently, but it's killing us every day. And the only ingredient, the only, uh, the only solution is Christ Jesus' forgiveness. If we're believers, we confess, we repent, we receive strength, we're accountable, and we worship. We put whatever barriers in place to get away, accountability, we take it seriously, and we don't let the sin destroy our lives. What about you? What decision will you make today? Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Lord, if there's one that does not know you today, I pray that you draw them by the power of your spirit, that they'd come to know you as Lord and Savior. Lord, I thank you for a picture of your word that it shows us the sins, it shows us the pitfalls, the temptations. Lord, I pray as we recognize, uh, Lord, all of those sins that we deal with, that we would confess them before you and that we would seek the heart and the virtue of Jesus to replace our greed with giving, to replace our pride with humility. And Lord, we know you have to do that through your spirit as we submit, as we allow the word to penetrate our heart and your spirit to overcome us. And we humbly submit to you. Lord, I pray that you would transform us, that you would renew our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And for those who don't know you, that this would be the day that they trust you as Lord and Savior. In your name I pray. Amen.